Welcome, I'm Leah Carlson Downey, your host, and you are listening to Oscars Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the filmography of Oscar Isaac, presented by The Daily Drunk. For each episode, I invite a new guest to chat with me about one project on Oscars IMDb page. This week, we're discussing screenwriter Alex Garland's directorial debut, the sci-fi stunner Ex Machina. Oscar Isaac plays Nathan, a kind of tech bro Dr. Frankenstein who has created a seemingly sentient artificial intelligence. Isaac's performance in Ex Machina helped cement his reputation as one of the most interesting actors working in the 2010s. It also turned him into a disco dancing internet sensation. This building isn't a house. It's a research facility. And I want to talk to you about what I'm researching. You want to see something cool? Hello. You are dead center of the greatest scientific event in the history of man. Do you have a name? Ava. Answer me this. How do you feel about it? AI is beyond doubt. No, nothing analytical. Just, how do you feel? I feel that she's amazing. Dude. Do you want to be my friend? Of course. Will it be possible? Why would it not be? Did you know that Nathan brought me here to test you? I'm so excited to have culture writer Veronica Phillips here today to discuss Ex Machina with me. So welcome, Veronica. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited. I can't wait to talk with you about this film. Uh, This is a film that I know a lot of people love. A lot of people have probably been waiting for us to cover. It's one of Oscar Isaac's, I'll say it, few certified bangers. Uh, So I'm really excited to talk about this film today. And I'm really I'm honored that you agreed to come on to the podcast to talk about it with me, because I think we're going to have a great conversation about it. I was really excited. I didn't think I was going to be able to nab this one because this is like my all-time favorite Oscar Isaac, but I feel like it's hundreds of people. So I was like, no way I'm going to get this on the Oscar Isaac podcast. (laughs) The stars aligned. (laughs) They did. (laughs) They did. Uh, Yes, it's one that... If you've listened to episodes of this podcast, I always ask my guests what their first Oscar Isaac movie was or which movie they saw that made them an Oscar Isaac fan. And I don't know if it's just like my sample bias or, you know, whatnot, because it's people who love film and generally people who are a little bit younger. Uh, But so many people have said Ex Machina. Like this is the number one film that people have told me, yes, it was Ex Machina that I saw that made me an Oscar Isaac fan. Which is kind of surprising to me. I mean, it makes sense, I guess, but I it, I was I wasn't expecting it. That's been a surprise of this podcast, I think. Yeah, it is because there's sort of a cognitive dissonance because he's so objectively awful in this in a unique way, like not really the usual charismatic villain. So yes, we are going to get into that because I think there is something very very special. <laughs> Nathan and about Mm -hmm. Oscar Isaac's performance as Nathan. Um, There's something really compelling and slippery and uncomfortable going on with it. Um, And I can't wait to talk about it with you. Ex Machina came out in 2015. It is Alex Garland's first film that he directed. He's a screenwriter. Um, Were you a fan of Alex Garland's before you saw Ex Machina? Because I know you're into Danny Boyle. Yes, I would say aside from um, Train Spotting, which is like my all-time favorite, uh, Danny Boyle has a lot of hits and misses, and his hits are almost always guaranteed Alex Garland. And like in my top three, uh, it's Train Spotting, and then Twenty Eight Days Later, and then uh, Sunshine. I just think he is so good at what he does with this kind of like sci-fi horror balance, without it necessarily feeling like a genre film. It just they just have they always have something so special. I don't know. I just I love him. I love him. So I when I saw this film for the first time, I was so primed to like it. I was like, I love Alex Garland. I was already on the Oscar Isaac train. I was like, yes, this movie has to be great. And luckily it was. Uh, as we were saying, it's sci-fi. It's uh, it's a chamber piece, which is really interesting. It's mostly set in one location. It has a very limited cast. So it's very important that the cast is spot on. And in this film, they are. It's Oscar Isaac, obviously. Uh, and he stars with Donald Gleason, 
and then of course Alicia Vikander uh, is sort of the third in the trio. Uh, and then I also wanted to shout out um, Sonoya Mizuno. She plays Kyoko in the film. She's not often really talked about as one of the main characters or one of the main performers in this film. Uh, and I think she should be because Kyoko is very kind of integral to the story. Uh, and I didn't want to leave her out. Absolutely. I found her on this rewatch specifically. I haven't rewatched this in a few years now. I used to watch it all the time. But um, I found her to be... Her sort of POV shift even happens a little bit before Ava, where you start getting the sensation that she's always around and maybe processing more than Nathan Oscar Isaac's character claims she is. And all of that is done through just very simple kind of like cinematic messaging and her just kind of having this uncanny valley off-putting presence um, that's totally unspoken. And I just don't know why she's not talked about all the time in the film, because I find her performance so careful and so incredible and her body language and her ability to kind of use this physicality while still seeming like the kind of AI she is is so impressive. A lot of people talked about Alicia Vikander's performance at the time as being incredible, which it is. But I agree with you. I think Sonoya Mizuno is doing just as much and just as carefully. Um, Yes. Yeah. yeah. So what is like the two to three sentence synopsis of this film for anyone who's listening to this and hasn't seen the film, which... If you haven't seen Ex Machina, I don't know what you're doing listening to this podcast. Go watch that first and come back. (laughs) Absolutely. Urgently. Um, So essentially, Caleb uh, is a coder at this kind of Google-esque search engine software, and he wins a trip to um, the creator of Blue Book, is what it's called, Uh, his kind of massive acres-wide estate in some kind of beautiful forest-type space. Um, and Oscar Isaac plays the sort of billionaire genius creator named Nathan. Um, and Nathan says the kind of purpose of winning this trip and this kind of spending this week with him on this private space, uh, is to help perform a Turing test, which is essentially, you know, something is artificial intelligence. Uh, but if you speak to it enough, you get the sensation that it might be human or capable of actually feeling feelings and, uh, having its own kind of self-processing intelligence and personality, Um, And so he's kind of having these collection of sessions with this uh, robot named Ava, played by Alicia Vikander, testing to see if she can adequately pass as human. But in the process, he sort of sort of starts developing feelings for her, uh, which they presume is against Nathan's wishes. So you mentioned that you used to watch this film all the time. So tell me a little bit about how you came to this film, like what your history with this film is. Yeah, so I was in the tail end of high school when I first saw it. Um, My dad kind of found it and showed it to me. Uh, And I was instantly attached to it. I found it was so good. I don't know what else to say. I just loved it. It impacted me. I thought it was weird. I thought it was sort of sexy. Um, I thought that it kind of had its finger on the pulse of where we were going with tech without necessarily being so hammering you on the head, Uh, which in high school, as I was like, grew up in the digital uh, age, I was kind of starting to grapple with and considering maybe my brain was turning a bit mushy and my information was being used. And I care about that a lot more now, but I was starting to care about it then. Um, And I thought also, I just, it was like the perfect movie to show my friends in high school because I was sort of becoming like a little mini baby cinephile. Uh, But my friends obviously weren't going to like sit through all my picks. Uh, But this one was like exciting and weird and modern um, and freaky without necessarily being scary. And so I just kind of ended up showing it to like whoever was willing to watch it. And I became very attached to it. And I actually did um, my high school senior year project. We had to like pick something we were into. And I did sort of like AI and the development of it in cinema because of this movie. So I was like very attached for some reason. I don't totally know why, but I loved it. It's interesting that you mention that this was like a good pick to show your friends uh, because I feel like there's something to that with Alex Garland. Like his stuff is deep, but as you said, it's accessible. And so it like, there's something kind of cool about it. Like you get some sort of cred for liking it, but it's not super hard to like, if you know what I'm saying. Yes. And it's totally. funny because that's when I first encountered Alex Garland's work with Danny Boyle. I'm a little bit older than you. Um, and my boyfriend at the time when I was in high school, he showed me 28 Days Later and Sunshine and all of that. And I feel like it's exactly for the reason that you just described. So I love that. That cracks me up. <laughs> yes. I just feel like he's like, it's like a good enough movie plus being fucked up enough that you it's like a safe bet to show people where you're like, it's weird enough. Don't worry. Like you're going to be off put and it'll be fun. But like, it also is an actual movie. Yeah. Which is yeah. fun. Yeah. <laughs> it is fun. 
Uh, no, that's very, that's cool. Um, so you have a long history with this movie then. Like you like loved it from the instant you saw yeah, it. And really I guess that's like 10 it. years now. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. So is Oscar Isaac's performance in this film something that you appreciated from the start? Was that one of the facets of it that you really um, appreciated or took to? Or was that something that you kind of grew to appreciate over time? Uh, no, that was pretty immediate. I think that's actually why I liked it so much. Um, I I hadn't seen Oscar Isaac and I don't think anything else. Um, I think I probably saw The Force Awakens around when I saw this one because that was the same year, but I'm not a huge Star Wars person. Um, and he is awful in this movie, but way more charismatic. And I had just never uh, seen quite a performance like this, not in the sense that it was like, oh, it's so life changing and it's so strange. But he tapped into this sort of narcissism um, that wasn't showy. Uh, and he was he's so subtle with it and kind of lets all of his space and his physicality speak for itself. Um, but he also is sort of off putting, like you're not totally drawn to him at the same time, even though you understand he is extremely handsome and charismatic and sort of fit in this kind of wonderkind. Um, but there's all like there's the flavor is immediately off, um, which is hard to do in the movie when every other character around uh, Caleb is like instantly off putting because they're not human and they have that kind of uncanny valley. But uh, Nathan is sort of this like extra weird dude. I don't know if you've mentioned it in this podcast yet, but I know you've told me off pod that you found Oscar Isaac sexy in this film, that that yes. was like, part of the appeal. Yes, totally, which is weird because I hate him. <laughs> it's not, I would not want to spend time with Nathan. Like it would not, or like, but he's incredibly self-assured, almost unjustifiably so, minus kind of his contributions to tech. Um, and he also just looks really good. Oscar Isaac looks so good in this film and he pulls off this sort of balance of that shaved head and the kind of like slightly graying beard. And he's like, toned but he's not like inaccessibly muscular like he's just kind of like this really good looking dude and oscar isaac has these like insanely gorgeous doe-eyed almost like innocent so expressive eyes that like slightly shut down in this movie compared to more other like more romantic aching films uh that he's in i'm thinking like inside lewin davis and stuff where that's his eyes are like everything in those and in these it's kind of like he's always calculating um and i uh, spent kind of my high school and adolescence in uh, the Bay Area, um, where it's like Tech Bro Central. Um, and you see a lot of people trying to pull off the look that Oscar Isaac successfully pulls off in this. And I think you literally have to be Oscar Isaac for it to work. Uh, but there's kind of that like sinewy, like lean guy who's muscular and the the weird like hair and beard decisions, and like not wearing shoes at work and shit like that. Um that is ridiculous. Uh, and Oscar Isaac somehow pulls it off and you kind of get it for a brief second. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I do think this is the film that made the Oscar Isaac beard a thing. Like I'm trying to think if there was a role prior to this that Oscar Isaac had worn like the full beard. Yeah. And I don't think there was. I think this is what. It's such good facial hair. It's such good facial hair. And yeah. that buzz cut is so fucking hard to do. And he looks so good. And he kind of has that little like patch that's like slightly more shaved naturally than the rest, like where it's like thinner. And it just makes him look like hardened and cool. Mm -hmm. It's yeah. true. It's true. And I think that that sexiness, that, that sexiness, that sex appeal, I think it works with the character. I mean, I think it's something that I have struggled with with this film. Like, I love this film. But I, I have I have struggled on every rewatch kind of interpreting Nathan, interpreting his character and kind of thinking about how he is sort of meant to be taken. And we can we can talk about this a little later. But I mean, I feel like people's reactions to Nathan as a character vary pretty widely, depending yes. on who you are and what your life experience is. <laughs> um, and I, I think that's I'm, you know, I've kind of come to the conclusion that I think that's intentional um, on the film's part and certainly on Oscar Isaac's part. I mean, I think he plays the role in such a way that he is meant to be simultaneously off-putting and seductive. Um, that there's yes. like, he's operating on both registers in a really, really skillful way. And it's something that I don't know who other than Oscar Isaac, like, I don't know that anyone other than Oscar Isaac could bring that particular tension to the role um if that makes sense 
Yes, I totally think so. And I think a lot of it is just kind of this natural, almost movie star-esque uh, charisma, because you could have a lot of uh, men who could have that look. And it would be like, okay, I register that as conventionally attractive. But he plays it with like a certain sexiness and almost, I would say, especially in the beginning when him and Caleb first meet, a certain flirtatiousness where it's kind of like, relax, it's just me and you and we're going to drink and we're going to hang out and like, don't be shy around me. Like this kind of this kind of like um, awareness of self that I don't think necessarily comes from the fact that he he probably does think he looks good, but that he has a sense he's special and that like he is sexy in that specialness. And that's uh, super irritating and ridiculous, but <laughs> he, he does it with such authenticity that it sort of works even on you as the viewer, which is incredibly frustrating to me because you, you want him to suck really bad. Yeah, uh, but he's still really hot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and by the end of the film, like he does suck. Like I am not trying to hedge that at all. Like he sucks. Totally. Um. <laughs> but you would, you would, if you were speaking to him in a bar conversation, you'd be like, ooh, ooh. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> this guy is pretty hot. Like this is working. And and it would be, it would be equally frustrating. I think. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. You'd be like, I need to be better than this. Yeah. I know. I often wonder. I'm like, okay, this would probably work on me in real life, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> Like, yeah, from the remove of watching, you know, the movie, I can be like, yeah, of course he's awful. But like, mm. brief, a brief conversation, it would probably, yeah, probably go his way. Yeah. So 2015 was kind of like a breakthrough year for Oscar Isaac. He had a handful of um, pretty big projects that really helped to put him on the A-list, I would say. I mean, he had had Inside Lewin Davis in 2013, which was, uh, you know, a breakthrough for him for sure. It was huge. Um, everyone really called out his performance as exceptional, even at the time. Uh, but it was really 2015 where he has Ex Machina's in the spring. Uh, he has Show Me a Hero in the fall, which is, um, uh, it was a limited series on HBO and, um, it was a David Simon joint, uh, and Oscar Isaac won a Golden Globe for that, which Golden Globes are fake, but that's the only kind of <laughs> award that Oscar Isaac has ever won to this day, which is wild to me. Really? Really. That's, I didn't know that. That's nuts. Uh, and then he had, of course, The Force Awakens in December of 2015. And I think Star Wars is what really kind of made him more of a household name. So 2015 was a huge year for him. And I want to talk with you a little bit about how Ex Machina kind of fits in to this year for Oscar Isaac. Because as I mentioned before, I think a lot of people who love Oscar Isaac point to this film as one of their favorites, one of the first ones that they noticed him in. Um, As I said as well, Ex Machina is one of the few classic, certified classic films that Oscar Isaac has been in, because he's been in a ton of terrible films, as we've said before on this podcast. Um, <laughs> like, I think it's it's one of the crown jewels in his filmography, I would say, in his career. Um, but yeah, I mean, how do you, how do you see Ex Machina as kind of fitting into this, this breakthrough 2015 for him? Because it is, yeah. like, we, like, I, like we were discussing, it's a really, it's a slippery role. It is. It's really juicy. Uh, and I would say that I have some movies of his I really don't like. And then I have some movies of his I'm fine with, but I don't find them particularly as kind of in-depth and nuanced. And I actually remember I went to go see The Force Awakens um, in high school. I need to preface this. I'm not a huge Star Wars person, so I I don't really remember much about it. But I literally didn't even recognize that it was him for the first chunk of the movie and eventually was like, oh, my God, that's (laughs) (laughs) that's Nathan or which shows maybe that he, he serves better uh, in probably more complicated, slightly more fucked up roles, maybe. <laughs> I found him very, like, endearing in Star Wars. Um, but it did make me just feel like, man, uh, I wish he was doing more, like, kind of slippery, nuanced stuff. Um, which is interesting because his career has really, I feel like, you're the expert here, I'm not totally sure, but kind of pendulums <laughs> I'm, back and I'm, forth. I'm flattered that you call me an Oscar Isaac expert. All right, the, I'll take absolute it. connoisseur, like PhD. <laughs> um, but I find that he kind of swings between the mainstream and kind of the weirder stuff. And I find the weirder stuff isn't always a hit, but I'm always interested in what he does. Uh, and he seems sort of aware of when he's kind of doing a mainstream thing and he brings his best, but it's sort of this earnest, bloody stuff that I just don't really speak to. So... I was, I remember kind of feeling hopeful, like, I hope this kind of shift into this big mainstream, like, Star Wars franchise and what that might mean for him doesn't mean he's going to, like, ditch Ex Machina, which Alex Garland is hardly, hardly, like, 
auteur cinema, middle of nowhere, <laughs> like <laughs> new wave. But yeah. um, but I did feel like it was like a quick shift that I was like, oh, I hope he's still doing weird stuff eventually. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, you're right. He Oscar Isaac does kind of go back and forth between this more kind of mainstream mode and then tr- kind of doing more challenging work. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think we should say Ex Machina was a hit. It made money. It was one of the first... I, as far as I understand it, and as far as I remember it, it was one of the bigger early hits for A24. I mean, yes, they that's got how in, I remember it too. Yeah. I mean, they got into the game with Spring Breakers in like 2013 and they had, you know, they were building up momentum. And I, I remember Ex Machina as being one of their sort of like marquee films. That was one of the films that really pushed them into prominence and also helped build up their like weird fan base, right? Like people were so passionate about this film. And I think also Ex Machina start or sorry. Um also A24 started to get a reputation for doing these sort of quote unquote elevated horror films or like elevated genre films. Um which I don't like that term, but that's the term that's used. Uh I know. And, I've, I know. Yeah. <laughs> but I think Ex Machina was one of the first of that type of film that A24 distributed as well. So it's sort of kind of helped get them make their name as a distributor of genre films as well. Yeah. Which when you think about it is so fascinating for kind of what you're talking about with Alex Garland, where he strikes that line between like mainstream, but tries to not necessarily elevate, but it has his own philosophical ideas. He's sort of interested in threading in. That kind of seems to be A24's MO still, even now that it's like so popular, is it wants to make sure it's marketing like everyone who's seen an A24 film is special, which is like everyone has seen at least one A24 film if you've like been to the movies in the last 10 years. Right. But but I think they really like benefit off of that. And it's interesting that he was sort of that launching point when that has always sort of been his thing, whether he succeeds or not, um, of striking this balance between like it's a little bit elevated and complicated, but it's still like a horror movie or a sci-fi movie or a sort of parable. Yeah, I don't know. I'm trying to to think of how I would describe like you and I are very entrenched in kind of online film spaces, film Twitter, whatever. Um, for better or for worse. For better yeah. or for worse. I'm trying <laughs> to figure out how to like articulate how people talk about this film in the spaces that we occupy online. Because Ex Machina is like just one of those films that film twitter loves (laughs) like yes like almost to memification and i actually remember it being one of the first kind of of that that kind of trend of like like merchifying movies that like usually wouldn't have merch where you could like get like one of those kind of like illustrated books or something like that or you could get like a screenplay or you could get like these sort of like bound um like coffee table book type things, which usually was like relegated before that from what I remember to kind of like classic based stuff or kind of cheaply self-published stuff. And then like A24 was like, this is a thing. And I feel like that's such a concise sort of example of how people relate to this movie where it's like the special thing. Um, but also the point, like it's silly to talk about that you like it because everybody on film, like who, people are gonna be like, who doesn't like Ex Machina? Like on kind of that film Twitter chronically online space. It's so sort of generally liked and accessible. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, I'm trying to remember kind of how much of that was happening at the time and how much of that kind of accrued in the time ensuing, because I mean, I, yeah, Oscar Isaac's popularity in his career really, really did benefit from Ex Machina. And I, and I'm kind of trying to remember how much of it was happening like immediately, or if it was, you know, in the months or years after. Um, And I, I can't remember because it just seems like everyone always liked this film. <laughs> I know, that's a really good question, actually. I've never thought about it in relation to the actors. It was the first time I had seen a lot of these actors, but I'm trying to think if like people like always are like, yes, this was their role. I know people were really impressed, but I don't know if I necessarily felt like everyone was talking about it like this was like their main correlation. Maybe the first year because it was a lot of their early stuff but well and i think too because 2015 was such a breakthrough year for oscar isaac and specifically i do think ex machina kind of became oscar isaac's film in a way like he was the he was the star the actor in that film who kind of dominated the discourse about it for a while just because then you know he had star wars then he had x-men apocalypse like his star was really really on the rise in this film quick too yes yeah yeah um i mean because i think about I think about Alicia Vikander and she was, you know, also a rising star at the time. She was also in The Danish Girl in 2015, which she won an Oscar for. So she was kind of also 
on the rise at that time. And I think Ex Machina absolutely helps her win that Oscar because she's so good on Ex Machina. Um, I like her. I think it's my favorite performance of hers. I agree. I agree. I re- I think she's a, a very compelling screen presence, but I think she gets miscast a lot. Um, I do too. Yeah. I think she gets put into stuff that's a little bit like, I don't even know how to describe it. I think there, she's so good at playing something like Ava where there's kind of this like interior turmoil. And she's also given, she's often given sort of like romancy fluffy parts um, that I don't like love for her. Also, she was doing period pieces for a while, and I don't know if I love her in period pieces necessarily either. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I don't know. But yeah, I don't know. I feel like as, again, maybe it's just because I'm terminally online, but I, I mean, I don't think that Alicia Vikander, like she was a rising star. She's won an Oscar. She's well respected, but she never had like the fan base of Oscar Isaac, right? Like, no, like he became a thing. Which, yeah, am I correct? Is Dom Hall Gleason also in The Force Awakens? He is, yes. Really briefly? Okay, Very I was briefly, just trying to remember yeah. if there was there was like a Venn diagram <laughs> moment going on yes, there. Yes, okay. yes, yes, yes. Uh, you've, you've tapped into one of my ongoing projects with this podcast called The Red String Section, where we just make stupid connections like yes. that. Oh my God, okay, we'll wait it out, we'll wait it out. <laughs> but yes, Uh yeah, Donald Gleason is in The Force Awakens for like two seconds. And I was like, what a waste. Yeah, that and like picture that differentiation. That's so weird. Like he's equally good as an actor, in my opinion. Ah, that's crazy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I know. Yeah, it, it's interesting. It's, I mean, I do think watching Ex Machina, Oscar Isaac's performance in this film is, as you said, it is the most immediately striking one. Right. Like, I don't want to say that it's flashy because it's not. I don't want to say that it takes over the film because it doesn't. Um, but it's the one that hits you first, I think, at least for me. We talked a little bit about it, but like, what what do you find that Oscar Isaac brings to this role? Like, how much of this character, Some a way that I like to think about it, which you can't always dif- divide it up this way, but I like to think about when I'm thinking about a character, how much of it is what's written in the script, how much is how the character is written and how much is like what the actor's bringing to it. And like in this case, what do you think Oscar Isaac is bringing to this character that may not necessarily be in the script, if anything? I feel that the idea, I think that it's really hard to have everything else that is going on and all of these interpersonal relationships uh, kind of occurring and developing and that we should obviously probably be caring caring about uh, Ava and Caleb the most. And yet every time Oscar Isaac as Nathan is there, uh, he sort you want to center in on how he's feeling about something and you sort of feel this consistent threat. But Oscar Isaac never plays this threatening evil dude uh, at the same time. And there's not, you don't really know what he could threaten anyways when you think about it. But he's sort of this like ever-present, omnipotent sort of uh, overlord of this situation. And he really likes giving off the sensation that he has been kind of planning every single step of the process, including the fact that he didn't randomly select Caleb and including the fact that once Caleb and Ava sort of start having feelings for each other, he kind of claims that he was working on that too, which maybe he was, maybe he wasn't. I'm never totally clear on that. But he kind of does it without kind of having this like hands rubbing together evil situation. So like even when they kind of consistently bump into each other in the night when uh, by the time Caleb is drunk, I would say maybe the most kind of empathetic part of his character is that he definitely struggles with like actual alcoholism, I believe, like beyond just like kind of this like letting loose um, billionaire lifestyle. Like he like the saddest he is and he kind of actually genuinely gets pathetic at a few moments when he's like really, really drunk. Um but he's still off-putting when they bump into each other in the night and he's really drunk, even if he's kind of um, struggling. Um, and so I think finding that balance where he's, he's not, like, he is the bad guy, but he's not playing the bad guy uh, is difficult. And I think Oscar Isaac probably brought that to the table more than could kind of naturally be offered. Um, and I also think that the the film's kind of philosophical tech opinion seems to really be invested in the idea of the way our information is sort of being mined and hoarded um, and the way that it's kind of in this case, being like made to make a whole other person. But the idea that even if that wasn't happening and that's this sort of dystopian imagined situation, like our our shit is always being used to sort of bring stuff toward us and try and sell us things and try and make us into constantly engaged sort of beings online. Um, And it's aware of that. But Oscar Isaac, I feel the script is aware of that. But Oscar Isaac, I feel, brings 
this sort of his sort of charisma and confidence and sort of he knows what's best for the world, including making artificial intelligence that seems human, which he doesn't I don't ever totally know why he wants to do that, um, except that he likes playing God. Like that's his first thing that he kind of admits to. He he, he says that he feels like Nathan told him am I flip, flipping names? Caleb told him that like uh, he's a he like is like doing the work of gods, which is not even what uh, he actually said to him, but he like perceives it that way. Um, but I see that as like Oscar Isaac playing into this idea of like these kind of tech billionaire types who take the idea of like capitalist individualism, which was the idea that we could maybe like all have a small slice of the pie originally was the idea that you could have like a little slice of the American dream and be like, I want to be a god and actually have all the money in the world and control everybody in the world. And that's the logical extension of capitalism and current existence, which we're like seeing in real time uh, right now, I would say, even in the last like week. Um, but Oscar Isaac kind of tapped into that like egomaniacal thing uh, without making it seem ridiculous and making it seem like that's a tangible thing that could happen. So I guess my extremely long answer, <laughs> the short form is he brought sort of a subtlety that I think some could have been way more aggressive and scarier. And what's freaky about um, Nathan is he kind of holds back and remains charming in his kind of off-puttingness. Yeah, I think that subtlety is a good word. I think quietness is another word, too. I mean, I think you see this with a lot of um, Oscar Isaac's performances. Um, and I think some of the performances of his that people don't like is when he doesn't do this. Um, but he he often will make the more understated choice. He has a very soft voice. He rarely yells on screen. He's very contained. He'll often give very contained performances. And I think that's part of what makes Nathan work so well, um, is that he clearly understands himself as a powerful man. He has a confidence. He does have this way that he threatens Caleb and um, Ava. He is like, you know, constantly surveilling them. He is keeping them in fear, you know, but he never overplays it. I mean, he's very... He's just very quiet. Uh, and I think yes. that, that, that that lends the character a gravitas almost um, that would be lost if he got too loud. And I think, you know, I mentioned before that I don't feel that Nathan overtakes the film. And I think part of that really is Oscar Isaac's performance because he he keeps the character contained enough that he doesn't overtake everything. The performance doesn't become too showy. The performance doesn't become too, um, yeah, too egomaniacal, right? Like for, uh, from an actor's perspective, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I was just going to say, like, I even find his physicality. The first time we see him, he's kind of practicing boxing outside and the kind of like, which he knows when um, Caleb is coming. Like he's doing that for a reason. Um, and I think it's mostly to show off that he's like strong and handsome. I don't even think it's supposed to be threatening. But aside from that, he really doesn't encroach ever on Caleb's space. Um, and I was so struck this time when everything is the shit's kind of hitting the fan. Um, and Nathan's essentially like, I know what you guys are talking about. I planted this camera. I know you guys are trying to leave. Um, he's always sitting really far away from Caleb up until it sort of dawns on Caleb the like I incredibly icky, invasive uh, notion that. Ava's face is built off of um, Caleb's porn profile, like what he, the woman he looks at the most. And Nathan comes in that moment and sits by him. And I just thought that was like, that is so off-putting to Caleb for no real reason. Like the invasiveness part has already happened, but like their bodies being close is this kind of threatening aura that again, he's not going to like reach over and strangle him or something. He's just not this intense dude. Uh, but because he's so muted and always so distant, when he gets close or admits closeness, um, or even does a little bit more kind of of a threatening tone, it plays up so much freakier than if he was always sort of this big brash bad guy who was overconfident and then gets bigger and brasher the worse it gets. Yeah. And I think this sort of quiet contained performance goes along with, in a way it does go along with the kind of the script's characterization of Nathan because Nathan has created these, this artificial intelligence. The, the reason he gives for it is kind of like, well, it's going to happen anyway. Like it's not, I mean, he does have a God complex, but it seems more like he's like, this is inevitable. Someone's going to create it. So it might as well be me because I'm smart enough to do it. And AI is going to take over the world. And humans are going to go extinct and that's just it is what it is you know yes <laughs> and, like, and like good or bad intention is out of it it's like i might as well do it which doesn't make any sense at all like there's no picking that apart but he knows that the people who work for him especially someone like caleb 
is sort of like into him and mm-hmm. like infatuated with his brain. Well, so, and I think yeah. that that's a very sort of uh, big tech attitude too. Like it's just this like, well, it's inevitable. It's going to happen. So why, why not? And it's like, well, no, <laughs> this is not inevitable. If you don't build it, it's not inevitable, but okay. And, and a big part of that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And a big part of it, too, is that I think a lot of a lot of these kind of Nathan types have their like Caleb's who like back them up until the shit starts hitting the fan for them directly. And I, I you see that happening again, not to mention it again, but in real time right now on kind of this Twitter buyout moment that is like literally threatening politics and impersonation and, and the, kind of these big deal things that it's like, well, it's going to happen anyways, that we're going to shift to more advertisement based models and money models. Um, and you have these people backing up Elon Musk, of all people. Um and the idea that he's going to like like them for it or notice. Um, and I feel like this x is such a good small scale example of this of like, well, someone's smart enough to do it. So that must mean we should do it. And like, you know, and that must mean other people just aren't getting it because they're not kind of signing up for this fatalistic tech overlord moment, um, which doesn't have to play out the way it's playing out. I don't think. No, I agree with you. I agree with you. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that there's something so much more realistic and so much more scary about like nathan and the way that oscar isaac plays that um rather than this like you know yeah like this plotting villain guy yeah exactly and i don't think i think he doesn't even he does like it's not like is he doing the right or wrong thing i don't think he even thinks about that which is so interesting for a villain as well because usually the motivation is slightly more personally motivated than just like i want to do it and that is really why he does everything because he's like figured out at a young age i think he was like 15 or something he wrote his Initial code is what 13, Caleb says. Say 13. Yeah. So if Nathan can do that, he's like, well, I can do anything. And that's the end of the motivation. <laughs> Not I can do anything so I can, you know, help. It's like I can do anything so I'm going to do anything. That's fucking scary. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so another thing about Oscar Isaac's performance, and we mentioned this a little bit earlier, but I want to come back to it because I think it. this is an element that I think works both with and maybe unintentionally against the script is Oscar Isaac's sexiness and his sex appeal because Nathan is a creep. He's a misogynist. He builds these women and puts, you know, uh, uploads the AI and basically uses them for sex. Um, He's. It's nasty. It's nasty. Yeah. Um, And there's something about having Oscar Isaac in this role, someone who is actually sexually attractive, someone who is charismatic, someone who is seductive, playing a character like this that's so much more unsettling than it would be if you had someone who's like, you know, your stereotypical nerdy incel. Yeah. There's a way I think that that this kind of storyline could have gone, but having Oscar Isaac in this role really, really complicates this thread of the story, I think. And I'm wondering what how you feel about that, if that's something that you have any thoughts on, or if this is just me, like, free associating. Not at all. No, I actually, as you said that, a few thoughts dawned on me. And the main one is that I actually haven't thought of it th- this way, but I think what's freaky is that he is objectively sexy. He's obviously capable of kind of turning on the charm. He's really invested in the idea of his AI, one of their main kind of signs of being close to human is that they can turn on the charm as well and that they have sexuality and that they can kind of flirt and use empathy and kind of consider what other people might want. And he uses that to his own icky gain of like, he obviously makes women that he, I think probably borderline fetishizes and like kind of this ideal look. And they all have kind of the same, like really small, tiny, small breasted bodies, like all of that is part of it, but that he thinks like a key part is being able to kind of read somebody and use your sexuality, perhaps even with um, Caleb um, to, kind of win um but i think what's maybe the most off-putting about that is that he knows all this to be true he's objectively attractive he's worth so much money but something about him is so sort of rotten to his core that there's not really anyone who's around him in his space and he claims it for it's for privacy but you have to wonder if no one wants to spend more than maybe a night with him that there like isn't a woman out there who like if you spent more than one night with him you wouldn't be like this is extremely off-putting and that there's something about his essence that is like shuts down all that kind of sexual attraction and i think that might be why he works so well um in that part you mentioned the the part in the movie where where donald gleason's character caleb kind of asks oscar isaac like why 
why did you give Ava sexuality? And, and Nathan gives this explanation that's just like, um, he describes it as like, it's just part of life basically. And that's like part of how people get what they want and all that kind of stuff. And, um, yeah, it's, it is interesting thinking about like how much that says about Nathan as a person and yeah, how he I, that's my, in the world. And that's my favorite scene in the movie. I love that scene because it's so weird. And he goes on this whole spiel about how he's created a sort of like pleasure receptor area where like female genitalia would be for all of his kind of girl bots. And it seems important to him that he says to Caleb, he says, you know, to answer your real, your real question, like, yes, you can fuck Ava and yes, she'll enjoy it. And yes. that's so interesting to me that he, that he thinks, I don't know, that he like thinks that makes it okay, maybe, I think. Yes. And I think what's so interesting about that is that the idea that Ava and presumably Kyoko, who is kind of his like, I like lady in waiting, it's so weird. Like she does everything and then they also have sex. Um, and and when she doesn't have when she's not sleeping with him or serving him food, she's like sleeping by him, kind of like curled up like a dog on like the back, like couches and stuff like that. It's very weird. It's like the subservience thing. Um, but in all of that, like he creates these pleasure receptors, not necessarily because he thinks, wouldn't it be nice for these robots to understand pleasure? But more, I think, on an ego based thing of like, not only do I get to fuck, I get to feel important because they maybe feel whatever the robot equivalent of biologically good is like that means anything at all and like they have any actual capability to consent or free will uh or actually even need these things like if they're just robots why like it's only on this kind of ego-based level because why would you actually give a shit if they're like non-feeling beings i don't know yeah so like that kind of stuff is interesting because like yeah he's sexy and and like charismatic and needs like his little weird robots that he's making to like reflect that back to him uh, even if it's not technically philosophically meaningful or probably spiritually meaningful. Yeah. You mentioned that, uh, that Nathan, you mentioned the sort of like fetishistic angle of like how Nathan treats these robot women that he builds. And I remember the first time that I watched this movie, the most horrifying moment was, was, was when Caleb finds these. I um, hate this part. Mm-hmm, he finds the sort of previous versions of Ava, he finds all of these women who are not whole, they're kind of in parts um, in these closets. And I still kind of struggle to articulate like what precisely is so horrifying about it to me. It's just so awful. I hate that scene. It's so gross and powerful and totally is like one of the centerpieces of this film. It's one of the things that makes this film work. It's one of the things that in my mind makes Nathan completely irredeemable. Um, yes, I, totally. Well, and I, I, that scene, I want to loop back to that really quickly, but, but the, um, the way he speaks to Ava too, when he finally shows the audio, when he's talking picture and it's like, he's talking to a child, but he sees Ava as like a sexually compatible woman so it's like how does he see women in his head and like these robots have to be women and they have to be sexually into him but he's so patronizing toward them um not just like you're a girl and you're stupid but like actually treating them like children which is so fucked up um but that specific montage of kind of all those old attempts what freaks me out is i think all of them like ava is the first one you see that doesn't like he always makes sure to put that like human skin on them even if they don't have a head or a face yet like they have human skin head to toe and breasts and like designs of like pubic hair, like exactly how he wants it to look. Um, and they're different skin tones and different races. Like he spends time developing that, like even before he makes it into a full looking woman, he makes sure their bodies are, are women's bodies. And then he kind of focuses on training them and teaching them how to draw and and uh kind of stuff like that or arguing with them about how they want to like leave the space and that one horrible moment where one of the robots kind of like just shreds her arms down trying to like bang the glass open yeah that is just like what is wrong with this dude like 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 his you can see his value system i think in that montage which is so off-putting that it really is not just that sexuality is fun and these robots serve to have it but like that's what he's actually thinking about and the idea that they're kind of these like responsive little toys is sort of this fun uh, bonus, but he's making sure to really value that they are aesthetically pleasing to him first and foremost. And the only one allowed out of her kind of cage is the one that he like takes away the ability of language and makes her cook. Yeah. I mean, I think there's also something 
the as I've revisited the film um, since I saw it the first time, there have been a lot of discussions in the real world about like what are the implications of giving these voice assistant um, AIs a female voice, right? So there's this uh, this the default for Alexa or you know your Google Assistant or whatever. It's the default is this female voice, and there's been a lot of kind of academic research into you know. Um, the implications of this and all that kind of stuff and, and thinking about this idea, you know, I guess the sociological implications, right? Like what, what, why do we want to give these sort of service uh, tools, a female voice, a subservient yeah. female voice. And I think there's something about ex machina that's sort of like just the most extreme uh, sort of spinning out of that. Yeah. I, I think for for me, it's a little bit of like that kind of like the reverse uh, is the more frightening part, not the actual like execution of it. Like I actually am I, I like I do a bit of like nerdy reading on AI and stuff and I I go back and forth, but I mostly have this sort of unpopular belief that like AI stuff and robot stuff is like it's like a toaster. Like you can talk to it how you want and interact with it how you want. So the freaky part isn't like if you tell Alexa to shut up and it's a woman's voice, it's like, Alexa won't carry. That's okay. <laughs> but the flip side is you're learning, like those neural pathways are developing where you're hearing women's voices or you're seeing these like pornographic, like perfect heroin chic in, in uh, Nathan's case, kind of tiny bodies that he's like constantly sexualizing and creating. What does that imply for us humans existing in the world uh, and people with feminine voices existing in the world? Like the reverse is the frightening part of like when you're interacting with humans, those neural pathways are developing with technology. And what are we representing in that kind of like AI relationship? Um, and I think this movie points out really well that there is there is like reverse consequences to that. In the sense that like this fucks up our brain for like how we interact with women potentially. If like even though it's like obviously if you're some whatever, like some sexist boy somewhere, then you're like, no, I want it to be a hot girl um, and they won't know. But it's like, what does that mean for everyone else existing around you? And what does that imply? I really kind of love how uncompromising the end of this film is, right? Like, I I love that Caleb gets trapped in the compound. Me too. <laughs> I, I, oh, I'm mean, so glad it goes badly for everyone. Because yeah. I think it's more about the value system that they both agree upon. And they're on these kind of different ends of a spectrum. But they agree on the basis, which is the part that I take issue with. So it's great that they all get punished, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I Like, I feel like... And again, you know, kind of in retrospect after seeing men, maybe I'm giving Alex Garland too much credit. Um, but I do feel like Ex Machina has something to say about this kind of culture of misogyny that we live in, right? And so he's yeah. he's he's applying he's talking about this very specific instance of AI and he's like, you know, using that kind of that as a lens. But I think what he I think there are things that this film has to say about the way that women are treated in the world. I think a lot about how Ava sort of only realizes she can get out if she can play into the frankly misogynistic kind of ideal that Caleb seems to understand of like, it's great, we'll leave together and then I'll be nicer to you, but I will still own you. Like, you know, we'll, I'll save you and we're going to be in this relationship. Like no way in hell she, they could get out and she could be like, great, peace out. Like, I'm going to do my own thing now. He would not accept breaking up as as this option for this AI. And he would have power over her because he would be the only one that knew what she was, right? Totally. Was not to AI. mention, uh, I read something really interesting today while I was kind of doing my last notes that like she has a very delicate physical body. Like it breaks easily. And and uh, when there's that kind of final amazing like fight out scene with Ava and Nathan and uh, Kyoko, uh, he sort of knocks her arm off really easily with this little metal bar. So it's not like she's capable of tons of physical touch or any of these things that Caleb may pretend he's this nice guy, nice guy that's not worried about it. But of course he wants to fuck Ava. Like that's like part of it. Yeah. Nathan's not wrong when he's like to answer no. your real question. Yeah, <laughs> totally. Totally. Um which I don't think makes on that front makes Caleb evil, but it's just not like he can't think kind of those three steps ahead. Um, and Ava obviously is thinking a million steps ahead all the time because she's not human. So <laughs> she's like, this is not my problem. Um, but I do think it really is their movie. And I don't think that sense of foreboding would exist as much without these kind of moments that you have Ava and Kyoko, especially just kind of standing and thinking like you you can tell like something is processing in their brain that it's not just like this blank stare like they are considering something 
And that is scary because where uh, Nathan might not necessarily have some huge like fight with um, Caleb, who knows what they're thinking about and what they're kind of willing to do, especially because they're not working with human ethics, which good for them because they don't. And then <laughs> good for them, they don't, and they get rid of them. And that's great. I'm so glad. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there is something interesting to me about the way the film sort of blurs the distinction right between like AI and and the condition of being a woman right like there's like it's an it's interesting and I don't know that it's like fully thought out all the way <laughs> but it's so, but it's so interesting to me especially rewatching it recently there's this kind of moment where it's the two uh robot women I don't even know what you'd call that <laughs> robot girls um, where they're kind of like both in states of rest and it cuts between them and they're lying very kind of like lifely and, and like almost seductively and resting very elegantly. And you don't know, is that like the socialized learning? Is that something programmed into them? But there is this, I, like they're feminine beings because of their programming. And that I hope that's purposeful, the way that kind of all ends up panning out and how they kind of communicate this need together that they need to get rid of the, these men to go on. And that last moment where they communicate, uh, Kyoko can't, talk um but they kind of like look at each other for a really long time and touch hands and it's almost intimate but you can tell there's kind of this like connection of um like baseline information that gets them to kind of attack uh nathan together that feels related to kind of this uh bond i like to imagine can happen in womanhood where people kind of understand our main value systems and uh what has to be done has to be done to protect us from like horrible situations um but it is different because they're not humans so yeah, I love that final scene when they kill Nathan together. Oh my god! Um, I always the way the knife goes in, like, like butter is just amazing, and it's his own stupid fucking like fancy knives that he has around for his sushi. <laughs> I just love that. I love that. Yeah, and there's something so it's a violent scene, right? I mean, Nathan gets stabbed twice, and Ava loses an arm, but there's something almost like frictionless about the fight you know the way yes. he just kind of like falls onto her knife and the way that it's so easy for nathan to knock off ava's arm like yes and the way she runs at him is so smooth um and that his last words are fucking unreal like uh -huh. he's so muted like he's just uh -huh. like this is so and the uh, the shock in him that's an another one of my favorite parts of his performance is he's so egotistical he never thought this could go wrong when it is only that glass barrier protecting him from his creations that hate him and tell him that they hate him um and it's like oh my god no way that it only took these kind of gates going up for uh this to all go to shit like there was so little between him and and like icarus type vengeance yeah. But it's interesting because Nathan talks about kind of the rise of AI and the fall of humanity is kind of So inevitable. what does he think is going to happen to him? Yeah. Yeah, but I think it's it's so interesting then how the end of this film plays out is kind of like inevitable, you know? Like I don't yeah. know. Yeah. Like he's not wrong, but yeah. it comes for you too. So maybe yeah. we shouldn't take it so like <laughs> that's so like of course we should do it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so before we go, there's one thing we have to talk about that we haven't talked about yet. If you are a fan of Ex Machina, you know where this is going. We have to talk about the disco dance sequence. It's insane. I can't <laughs> I, like, I'm so delighted every time. I'm like, I can't believe this is a thing that like made it into the movie and like it has its full minute. So essentially, it's when things are starting to... When Caleb is becoming aware he, uh, that he feels like him and Ava have a sort of maybe special connection that Nathan's not going to be able to understand. Um... And he's trying to get a little bit more information on what exactly, uh, like, what the relationship is between Nathan and Ava. And he's kind of looking around this kind of cavernous space. And there's this room where uh, uh, Nathan likes spending his time where there's, like, this Jackson Pollock he has. And he has this whole kind of, he likes to drink in there and think his big thoughts. Um, and Caleb ends up in there and he bumps into Kyoko, who immediately tries to start kind of seducing him. And I don't know if it's kind of like an automatic response she has or, or what the deal is there. Um, but he really wants to figure out why Nathan uh, tore up Ava's picture. So he's kind of checking with the other robots and, and trying to find what's going down. And he finally tries to confront Nathan. Um, and when he does, Nathan uh, <laughs> totally deflects by pressing a button. Um, and these kind of sexy red lighting comes on and him and Kyoko do a whole complicated choreographed disco dance together uh, to end the conversation about what's happening with him and Ava, uh, which is completely unexpected and not tonally 
part of the movie at all, except for it comes in so seamlessly and feels so right and is so extremely off-putting. So like what makes this scene so great in the film? I think I think it's that um yeah, it's the unexpectedness, but I think it's that it 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 like sort of flows almost appropriately and I think it is just such an incredible um encapsulation of a side of Nathan that you don't really consider until this moment where he's so childish like this this idea of like I can do what I want when I want and I can make what I want and I just happen to be smart enough to do it. Um but it comes from this sort of audacity is like I also like made my room have a special disco dancing button and I've spent my time choreographing this dance, choreographing it for my little like slavey robot. Um, and like, I do this sometimes, like I've done it before alone. Um, and he's just sort of like a weenie. Like he actually doesn't know how to do conflict in the end. And this is like natural for him. And I think what really makes it is Kyoko just having this like flat nothingness expression, like the execution of this dance where it is smooth and it's graceful and it's lovely, but it like it is like wow, this is seriously an artificial intelligence. This means nothing to her. She it's not tongue in cheek. She doesn't understand irony. Like this is just like this thing she does the same way she makes dinner and has sex with him. Uh, and it's like this is like probably sucks if she has any sort of sentience. This is like what a horrible, humiliating life if she can feel that feeling. Yeah, I agree with you. I think it's Kyoko that makes this scene so unnerving for me personally. She's the one that starts, she starts the dance and she kind of goes over to the dance floor and it's like a little finger wiggle. "Mm -hmm." It's (laughs) like you said, she starts dancing flawlessly, but just completely blank face. Um, And then Nathan joins and yeah, it's clear that they've like choreographed this together or he's programmed the choreography into her brain. Like the whole thing is just, it's, yeah, it's complicated and made gross by Kyoko's involvement. I and think. it does look sexy and it does look cool. It, it is does. so watchable. It's not like, ooh, she's like, what is this? It it totally looks how he thinks it should look, minus kind of her expression in the sense that you get that like she's maybe a sentient, as he says, and this is maybe like a fucking miserable, embarrassing existence. Yeah, it is cool and sexy to watch. So that kind of gets me into my next point. What happens when this scene gets totally taken out of context? Because it was a meme. It was like a viral moment when this movie came out. It was like the video was shared everywhere. There were articles written about it. Like it was kind of the, it was memed. Um, And I always felt kind of weird, like weird about it. Because yeah, in the context of the film, it's like not sexy and it's not cool. And it's really weird. I don't know. I just, how do you feel about that? It's complicated, right? Because like, I you wonder, like some people must have seen that without knowing she, Kyoko. There's no signal that Kyoko's artificial intelligence or not human um, in the clip that was kind of memed everywhere. Or that she's his sex slave. Yes. Like I like, yeah, what else? Yeah. Like every all of her other kind of work at that in this location and with this man. Um, it's so weird. I wonder what it would what you would think of it if you watched it without knowing the plot of the film. It, it kind of feels like to me, I'm weirdly thinking of like all the different times they kind of uh, dance in the big chill and like when they're fooling around in the kitchen and it like signals so many different relationships at once. Whereas like if you were watching that with no context, you'd be like, I don't know, some of these people are friends where it's like actually signaling like people planning to like have babies and shit like that. Um, it kind of feels like the equivalent of that where you're like, you'd be like, oh, I guess these people are just doing a fun, weird dance and she's like really serious about it. Um, but it is sort of weird because it really feels uh, integral to the movie. It feels like a strange thing to get totally decontextualized online. It actually feels like something Alex Garland might have a take on because it is so uh, like weird tech dystopia. <laughs> like this like almost tragic off-putting moment in this movie is like, oh, it's just silly. Yeah. Well, and I think kind of when it gets taken out of context, it's kind of easier to read it the way that like maybe Nathan would see it himself. Right. Like it's, I mean, yeah. Yeah, it just seems kind of silly or seems kind of fun or seems kind of cool. And it's like none of those things really in context. No, um, not at all. I mean, I, I kind of understand why it became a viral moment because it's it's a fun clip. Oscar Isaac sells the hell out of it. He's a great dancer. So good. He's so good. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know. I just this I, I'm sure that there were were examples of of this happening before the disco dance scene with Ex Machina, but it's one of the first that I remember, one of the first sort of clip bits of a movie getting kind of memed or going viral out of context. I remember it being like a major like um like movie clips moment. Like it was like one of those ones that I remember them just being like, 
yeah, like I'm looking right now and it's like these like all of the top ones have like over two million views of like multiple repostings. Like it was like a thing and not everyone has seen Ex Machina. So, yeah. I mean, and it's it's interesting because I feel like it's something that's been copied. I mean, I'm thinking about just this year alone. I can think of two examples. You have the dance scene in Fresh. Uh, yeah, I was thinking about that today. Mm-hmm. Um, they're clearly kind of trying to achieve the same sort of moment. Which it didn't. Um, which oh, it didn't. I, I hated that movie. To... I hated I it. <laughs> oh, my God. We're doing hot takes on that. Daisy Edgar Jones, I love you. Don't do that again. <laughs> no, no. And then the other one that I was thinking about was, did you see Spiderhead? I didn't see Spiderhead. So it's it's also about an egomaniacal tech billionaire who seems like a cool dude, but is really not. Um, and Chris Hemsworth, in this case, plays the cool dude tech bro. And his performance, his performance is great. I, I like him. I Same. I don't love the movie as a whole. I don't think it works quite as well as it should. Um, but Chris Hemsworth is great in it. His performance does take over the film. And I think it's really interesting to compare, even though they're they're similar film or even though they're different films in in a lot of ways, it's really interesting to compare kind of what happens with Chris Hemsworth char- Chris Hemsworth's character in um Spiderhead to Oscar Isaac's character in Ex Machina, because I think, like I said, Chris Hemsworth does take over the movie in Spiderhead. Um but he has a scene where he dances. Like he's in, he's yeah. alone in his room and he's like, um, it's a, it's a similar kind of thing where he's like sampling the goods that he's making. Right. So it's not AI, um, in Spiderhead, it's, uh, drugs to make you feel emotions basically. Right. Okay. Um, and, uh, so there's a scene where you, you see Chris Hemsworth's character kind of dosing himself with one of these drugs. And then he like does this dance in his room. And I was like, are you trying to do the ex machina thing? Like, and that's just this year alone. I can think of two examples right off the top I of my actually, head. Um, at TIFF, Sanctuary is out. This is kind of like new BDSM thriller. And it's not quite the same situation. I don't want to say too much. But there is like a conflict deflection that like music starts getting played really loud and people start mm-hmm. dancing in that same kind of style. And it's mm-hmm. like this like moment for someone that's like not not where we're supposed to be going. Like it's like a it's like a like a like a switch in the plot, kind of like a launching point. It's interesting too, even just dance sequence aside i feel like what happened with this with this scene in ex machina like you see other films trying to replicate that where they like make a scene that's clearly supposed to be then clipped and shared and go viral even if it's not a dance sequence but it's um, often dancing i feel but like it is often and yeah. i think it has to be as off the wall as this would totally like this didn't even feel tongue-in-cheek when it happened you were just like what the fuck is this like what just happened yeah like it was so natural not forceful yeah, I mean, it works really, really well in X Perfectly, yeah. yeah. But I just, it's curious to me that that's been kind of one of this film's big kind of impacts <laughs> in film going forward is like this yes. particular scene. Yeah, um, I don't know. I, I I've said this before. I really do think that this dance sequence did as much for Oscar Isaac's career as The Force Awakens. Like, I think I really do. No. Like, Totally. Well, because like it, that takes like so much to pull off without either being missing the mark, being like overly silly or like kind of being like lame. And it didn't do any of those things. And I would say Hyoko makes it. But I think his is the harder part in that specific scene to kind of like keep he's keeping control of the room in the most insane way possible. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, I I figured we had to touch on that dance sequence because it's just so i think it's the iconic moment from this film totally it's what i think of first when i think of the movie like a thousand percent yeah and i would bet even if i I talked to someone who hasn't seen ex machina they've seen this clip (laughs) oh totally if you spent like a little bit of time on youtube whatever like eight years ago yeah yeah yeah, you saw this clip yeah um yeah so any last thoughts on the the disco dance sequence no i just love it yeah i mean (laughs) the intro music for this podcast is a disco song the, oh good homage to this oh scene. good 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 i look i just look forward to this part like every time i'm watching it now <laughs> the first time it's outputting and then afterwards like it's so bad but you're like i just can't wait <laughs> i, I want to see i want to see kyoko do the little dance now i know <laughs> <laughs> which maybe makes us the problem i don't <laughs> so thank you so much for joining me on oscar's podcast to chat about ex machina it's been an absolute pleasure um i think we've had a great conversation i really really enjoyed talking with you about this film 
Before we go, do you want to remind our listeners where they can find you if they want to hear more from you? Yeah, sure. So I'm trying my best to slightly distance from Twitter after all the shit I talked today. Um, But I do, the one thing I guarantee do on there is promo everything I write. Um, So you can find me at uh, vnikki, V-N-I-C-K-Y-Y. And my kind of all my links, like my portfolio, all my staff writing gigs uh, are all along there. I guess that's kind of it. Yeah, it's my main spot. I write mainly at Film Days. I write a little bit at Film Cred and then I do freelance outside of there. Veronica is a very talented, very thoughtful writer. I enjoy everything she writes. Whenever she posts something new, I like click immediately. So (laughs) definitely check out her work. Um, She's a great thinker and a great writer. So I'm very lucky that she agreed to chat with me today about Ex Machina, which is just such a thorny little film. (laughs) I know that was like way more. (laughs) I was like, does unpeeling like nuance while we were going? I was like, wait, what is that? Is that what that means? I had so much fun. Thank you. Thanks for joining me today. (laughs) No problem. (laughs) Thank you again to Veronica for joining me for this episode. As always, we're going to cool down with an exercise I like to call the red string section. This is the portion of the episode where I look for patterns in Oscar Isaac's filmography that may or may not be, but probably slash definitely are not significant. I did start a virtual corkboard for this podcast project, which I'll be updating after every episode, so you can now follow along as I slowly unravel the secrets of Oscar Isaac's career using only my powers of useless trivia retention. So without further ado, here's your handful of ex machina-related Oscar Isaac facts for you to read into as you wish. First, Ex Machina was the first project that Oscar Isaac did with writer-director Alex Garland. In 2019, Oscar Isaac took a smaller role in Annihilation. Also, as we mentioned in the episode itself, Donald Gleason, who co-stars with Oscar Isaac in Ex Machina, shows up in The Force Awakens for like two seconds. That film came out later in 2015. Finally, Ex Machina is another instance of Oscar Isaac working with an actress who would go on to later win Best Actress at the Academy Awards for a different film. Alicia Vikander, of course, achieved this within the same year. She won her Best Actress Oscar for The Danish Girl, which came out later in 2015. The other example of this is Jessica Chastain, who won her Best Actress Oscar for the 2021 film The Eyes of Tammy Faye. Oscar Isaac also worked with Jennifer Lawrence in X-Men Apocalypse, and Lawrence, of course, has won Best Actress at the Oscars, but she won her Oscar before she worked with, well, Oscar. If I missed anything, if I missed any connections, please let me know. I want my corkboard to be as complete as possible. So you can find me on Twitter at Oscars Podcast. That's podcast with two A's. Thank you again for tuning in for this episode of Oscars Podcast presented by The Daily Drunk. I'm Leah Carlson Downey, your host, and I hope you'll join us next time.